10 years ago, you could look at a chart of the S&P 500 and maybe volume or a MACD or some basic indicator and have a back of the envelope sense of what the condition of the market is. You can't do that anymore um, because that day-to-day -day volatility, it's driving you out of that long position that you wanted to keep. And then three days later, we're making fresh highs and you got to buy back in. Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Market Call Podcast. Today, I'm excited to have John Kosar with Asbury Research. John, I have never met you. I've been a chartered market technician for since the 1990.com bubble. And, and we have never met, which is amazing to me. And I'm glad to be able to meet you now, at least virtually. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, man, I started with the MTA uh, back in the, uh, I think it was the late 80s. Uh, I got involved with the Chicago chapter because I worked on the trading floor back then. I, I worked at the CME, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And um, I joined, it was the MTA back then. I joined because I felt like I was out off in the wilderness. Um, I was really learning about charting. And um, back when I started on the trading floor, there were no computers on the floor. So you had guys that were walking around the floor with their heads down uh, doing the point and figure charts. Um, so that's who, you know, who the charting guys were, right? Cause they were never looking where they were going. They all had their heads down. And, uh, so I kind of noticed, I, I went there when I was 24 and, um, a friend of mine that I used to work out with, uh, I used to lift weights with a guy and all I knew was his name was Jack. And uh, that's how it is sometimes. Like when you go to the gym, you don't know really, you know, somebody gives you a spot. How's the weather? Or what about those bears? And then you go on with your day. But one day I saw him get into a, uh, a Porsche Carrera whale tail. Um, <clears throat> and it was parked way at the end of the parking lot. So, you know, him and I walked out together and said, see you next time. And he kept walking, walking, walking. I was wondering where he was going. In the last spot, like where there wasn't a car, like for a block, there was this beautiful Porsche. And it was his. And I asked him, uh, um, I asked him, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm alive cattle broker and i was you know i'm a kid from the suburbs right so i'm thinking oh does he work at the stockyards you know the stockyards had been gone like since you know since the early 70s so i'm going like is this guy some kind of a cowboy or what does he do i have no idea and um to make a long story short um he said you know young aggressive guys like you do really well on the floor you know you might if you ever want a job um Tell me, and I'll get you a job as a runner. And he worked for Shearson Loeb Roads at the time. Shearson's gone through a lot of iterations, but it was Shearson Loeb Roads back then. He said, if you ever want a job, tell me. And I said, I want a job. And uh, I was managing health clubs at the time, right? So um, it was fun job for a 24-year-old. I know it wasn't going to be so much fun when I was 34 or 44. So I was kind of looking for something to do. Uh, and uh, so I went down the floor. I met him on the train uh, at the train station the next day. And uh, and that was it. So, you know, I saw that the guys that seemed to be making 
the money or the guys that seemed to be the most knowledgeable about the markets were these guys that were walking around with their heads down, scribbling something on a piece of paper. And I found out that it was charting and the mercantile exchange had a, um, had a library. So, uh, you know, I worked in the cattle market cause I worked with him. So that market closed at one o'clock or one fifteen, mm -hmm. And, um, so every day after work, I went right to the library and started reading stuff and reading stuff. And I kind of fell in love with it. It made a lot of sense to me. And uh, whatever, 42 years later, here I am, right? Let's see. So back then, uh, was Richard Dennis still around on the floor back then? He was, he was just about gone, wasn't he? I don't recall that I saw him on the floor physically, but he, he was, was upstairs by then, I think. He was an influence, though, right? I mean, you know, Richard Dennis, everybody knew who Richard Dennis was. And uh, he had guys working for him. And that was where all the smart guys, right? That, those were the, if you work for Richard Dennis, you know, you were held in pretty high regard. Um, and uh, yeah, but that, uh, that may, I don't know if that was in, I don't know if that was his heyday. His heyday could have been a little bit earlier in the seventies, but he was certainly a presence at that yeah, time. He was just starting to wind it down in the eighties. So you started trading in what year again down there? 80. Well, I started on the floor in September of 1980. 1980. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And I worked my way. I started as a runner. I didn't know anything. And I worked my way. I was down there for a total of 17 years. So, you mm, know, wow. I got a, a little better job and I was a broker assistant. And then um, I was, I probably did every job down there that you could except for you know the cleanup crew the guys who swept the floors at the end i did everything else i worked on the phones um you know doing arbitrage um you know basically having a phone i think i worked in every um i worked in the currencies i worked in the agriculture i actually was there um as a, a broker assistant the first day that the s p 500 opened I was there during the crash. I had I had started like a little charting service on the floor. So I had customers at the Board of Trade. So I knew a lot of guys in the bond pit. And uh, <clears throat> actually, one of my best friends, it turned out to be, he was a, a soybean broker. So just through starting this little company that I had, and I was supplying these brokers with support resistance levels you know, really simple, like rudimentary stuff, but it was a nice little side gig for me. And I met a whole lot of people. So yeah, I was down there for 17 years and I finally left when it appeared that the uh, Titanic hit an iceberg and I didn't want to be the last guy off of the ship. You know, yeah, it became obvious. We had Globex and mm -hmm. he had, um, the Board of Trade had a, uh, I can't think of it, but there was one from the Board of Trade at that time, and there was Globex, I think, was from Mark. Uh, I may get those mixed up, but there was 24-hour trading. And, you know, I was getting into my, I think I was like 40, 45 years old at the time, and banging heads in the pits, a whole lot of fun when you're in your 20s and 30s. Sure. Once you get older, um, I was much, I became much more interested in, bigger picture and not just futures, S&P pit or whatever. 
And I saw the floor was going away. I mean, I didn't know when, but mm -hmm. I certainly didn't want to be the last guy off the Titanic. Um, so I left the floor in the late seven in the late nineties. Late nineties, yeah, that makes that makes sense. You started out in futures. Do you feel like futures helped you uh, kind of understand supply and supply and demand dynamics better than say if you had gone right into stocks? And I asked the question because it's because of the leverage factor. It just seems to me like people that were involved with futures kind of get it a little bit more, <laughs> but just maybe it's just my bias. <laughs> well, being on the floor, it gave me a different, I always say that was my college, you know, that was really my college um, because there was a lot less what you see in the financial press. There's a lot less three-dimensional chess where if the Fed does this, and Putin does that, and the election goes this way, and a lot of hand-wringing on what Chairman Powell is going to say tomorrow. It was a lot more practical, maybe, uh, less esoteric, um, and less academic, um, uh, and a lot more practical. Who's buying? Who's selling? How are people positioned in the market? Uh, you know, very mechanical in that way. Um, I miss the roar, uh, you know, hearing that noise in the pit. You know, you get a sense of which way the pit's leaning, you know, which way, you know, the crowd is leaning. Um, I keep, you know, financial television on all day just so I can get something in my ear that's given me an idea of which way the wind's blowing. And um, hmm. so I remember those days calling up the floor. So I worked for a hedge fund. So, uh, and I traded a lot of different futures, primarily the S&P. And that was how we got a sense, called several different brokers that were there and just listened <laughs> what was going on. And when we were at key levels, uh, we were purely systematic, but you, when we got to the point, we were working on execution. So it was, it was about, you know, how are we gonna enter right now? We know we need to enter or exit whatever, but uh, you know, what's the sense of what's happening right now? That's very interesting that you missed that because you have to kind of find it in a different way. So you have the TV going, maybe you have your, do something with your technical models so that you can sense it. I really missed it. Something, you know, you, it's funny, as you talk to somebody, uh, you know, the first thing that they ask you, right, if you're on the floor is, you know, do you know Joe Skolinski? You know, and there's 3,000 guys on the floor, right? So, you know, you don't have a whole lot of chance of knowing Joe Skolinski, but, um, as I talk to you, I've got these images coming back up in my head. One of the things I did, I think it's when I worked for NatWest Markets, is I told you I had this little business, just this little business where I would give floor traders support and resistance levels you know, so they knew when to get in and out of their trades during the day. And what I ended up doing was I would, I would be in the booth and I would have a customer that says, I've got 300 S&P to buy between now and Friday afternoon. And I would use those levels to buy the dips, try to buy off of the levels and just kind of keep the charts up. So it may take me a couple of days to get those, or maybe it was a thousand. I don't even remember what the number was. Mm -hmm. But my little bit of charting, and this is, I think, even before I got involved with the MTA, the market technicians, you know, now CMT, was just using that little bit of uh, skill that I had developed and finding those levels to
to help guys execute monetary amounts of S&P 500 that I couldn't even calculate in my head. You know what yeah. I mean? So that was fun to be able to take that and use it real time and help uh, a customer like you on the other end of the phone get really good fills, you know, during, you know, for that execution that they wanted to get done. So that was one of the most fun things I did down there, I think. It really made diff- made a difference back in the 90s. I mean, you know, it was it was a different world because we, we everything was satellite. If you were not, you know, right there, it was not like the way it is today. And a lot of people, a lot of young people who are entering the business don't quite uh, realize that. So getting good fills was, was harder. So you had to trade in a way out completely different way. Today is completely different, at least at the micro level. But in the, but in other ways, it's exactly the same. So I was going to ask you, like throughout your career, what are some of the biggest kind of changes that you've seen in how you have to implement or provide technical research to clients over the years? Such a great question. Um, Within the past five to 10 years, the market changed. The day-to-day volatility, right? We're up 70 today, we're down 50 tomorrow, um, which I believe it's because of all the algorithmic trading that is taking place now. There's a lot of, uh, you know, I've read estimates where 80% of the daily volume, um, you know, is computerized wow. trading, algo trading. I don't know if that's true or not, it's something I read on the internet, but there's a lot of noise that there wasn't before. You know, back in the day, you know, I sound like grandpa, right? But back 10 years ago, you could look at a chart of the S&P 500 and maybe volume or a MACD or some basic indicator and have a back of the envelope sense of what the condition of the market is. You can't do that anymore um, because that day-to-day volatility, it's driving you out of that long position that you wanted to keep. And then three days later, we're making fresh highs and you got to buy back in. And that happened. So that has changed. I've actually built one metric called the Asbury 6, which I took. I started testing all my favorite tactical tools in different sets, sets of three, sets of four, um, and seeing how well they did at keeping me focused on the real trend and away from the noise that you get where we're down 70 today and you blow out of all your longs. And then you have to buy them again, 200 higher, you know, or whatever the ne- you know, over the next week or whatever. And uh, so that's the big change. But interestingly, and I hope I'm not rambling on too much, but this is no. really interesting to me. When I was on the trading floor, and I was in the cattle pit, because cattle pit was small enough, so you could really see the locals. You got to know who the locals were. The locals were the guys that took the other side of the order. For those that don't know the parlance, but. You know, they were the individual guys. They owned a membership. They stood in the middle of the ring, and the order fellows were up at the top of the ring, top of the pit. And I, I was there for a couple of years, and I watched these guys, and I would, they would have their little point-and-figure charts too, and they would know, like, where the levels were. So these guys were all independent guys. But you would see all of a sudden – all six or seven of these locals down in the middle of the pit were trading for themselves, taking the other side of the orders. They'd all like put their hands out and be screaming and driving the market down. Right. So they were, so they knew that there were some sell stops underneath that, you know, in that deck, you know, they didn't, Mm -hmm. I'm sure they didn't know how many, but because of the chart or some other input, which I don't know what that was, 
but these guys would start offering it down, right? So maybe the S&P uh, or the cattle was trading at 64.40. They thought that there were sell stops at 63.90, and there was a whole lot of them. So they push it from 64.40 to 63.90 mm-hmm. just by offering it down. They hit that 63.90, and two of the brokers are 500 at 90, right? So they drive it all the way down to 6,300. These guys buy them back at 6310, 6320, and then they're gone for the rest of the day. They went to the Cubs game and they're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's what's happening now, but it's happening electronically, right? Mm. You have the same kind of mindset is where are the pain thresholds today? You know, where are those pain thresholds for support? Where are the pain th- thresholds for resistance? If we can drive them through here, can that start an avalanche and maybe we pick up 100 uh, index points in the S&P or, you know, um, in the SPY or whatever they might be trading in the Qs. So that's what that's where I think this came from. I think that computerized trading evolved to the point where with the guys in the cattle pit, you know, with the Jaguars um, and, the, and, and the houses in Highland Park, you know, we're doing back in the 80s. These guys are doing with much more money and much more stealth today. That's what I think is going on. Yeah, stealth for sure. In fact, that lies. Uh, I was going to ask you about this. I'm glad you mentioned it. You call it a lie detector test, right? I like to use metaphors. I like to try to. I think people make this very complicated, and it's actually very intuitive stuff. Mm. I mean, it really is. I mean, it's fear and greed is at its essence. So like I'll use, you know, lie detector test for the market. Again, like don't chase it because we were down 70 today because the internals or the Esprit 6 are still green. They're still positive. Um, you know, the other one that I use is, um, you know, when you go into the doctor's office for your annual exam, you've got a nice shirt on, your hair's combed, doctor makes a mental note of what he thinks that your health might be. And then he sits you on the sits you on the bench, and he's checking your pulse, and he's checking your reflexes, and he's listening to your heart and lungs. And how you look on the outside may not be necessarily how you look on the inside. So that's kind of how I explain um, mm-hmm. those six metrics that are in the Asbury Six, kind of how they. So you can make a connection to real life, you know, what that does. And I actually kept that Asbury 6 internal for a couple of years um, just to help me. So I wasn't getting faked out. My job's not to get faked out, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why they hire you. Um, so, you know, eventually it dawned on me, hey, why don't we clean up this, you know, metric and make it visually um, attractive is the wrong word, but make it, you know, visually palatable, I guess is right. And, you know, and let other people watch that market um, move kind of like a dimmer switch from everything red or negative back to everything green or positive or waffling in the middle, which tells you you're at an inflection point and you're probably very close to beginning a new directional trend. Yeah, and, and there, there's definitely more, more noise now. It, this reminds me of the fact that a lot of the trend followers back in the day in the 70s on the futures markets, the Richard Dennis types, the turtles, they used very short-term parameter sets. They were using 21 days, breakouts, things like that on the Donchian. They were using simple Donchian channel breaks and they were just killing it, cleaning up. Uh, and then uh, P- 
people started catching on to it. And then uh, then there, there was a, a some, somebody came up with an indicator called the turtle soup indicator, which was <laughs> which was basically how to counter off them because uh, you know they're hitting levels at certain you know they're hitting orders at certain levels and you just arb it out you know because you'll have this like big excitement move and then it'll just fade out they faded it you know those moves one way or the other and so that that kind of thing is happening but at a much more micro level you could see it in the middle of the day you know when we send out a block order we'll send it out to the broker and then we 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 put algorithms to put them out right so it's like, well, our algorithm, I was talking to a trader, he's like, well, our algorithms are fighting those algorithms. So we're trying to figure what's the best algorithm we can use that would fight the best in today's environment right now for that stock. You know, it, it, you know, how is that stock working today? Or, you know, in my world, it's more, more stocks now. I, in my proprietary account, I trade futures too, but, but for clients, it's primarily stocks. So it's it's an interesting, it has definitely changed. In the 90s, I think things were a lot easier. You know, if you could think about how, uh, you know, I mean, in terms of not having a, an initial drawdown after a trade, if you were working in trend following type uh, um, strategies, if you're working with mean reversion type strategies, there's a ton of that going on. And that tends to work until it doesn't work. You know, it's, 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 it's very interesting to see how, how that works out. So you so you've seen a lot of the systematic traders go much more longer term in their parameter sets now, and they're using a lot more what they call um, continuous models rather than discrete models. So they're basically saying, okay, we're going to use a model that that is going to scale, you know, and I've started doing that too, because it just helps you with execution. You know, you're heading in a certain direction, um, you know, and the fundamental guys are still fighting the same issue, right? I mean, uh, but it's definitely changed. I, I, it was interesting to hear your viewpoint because I think your viewpoint was more like directly seeing it. I've never been on the pit. I've never actually directly seen it. I've, the only thing I've seen is is the orders immediately go the opposite way after, you know, over time at, when they didn't used to. You know, things used to follow through and they don't follow through. Yeah, that's been the most difficult is the um, um, just the day-to-day -day, um, something else that I've, seen again all of this is anecdotal um you know and how you perceive it but when i f was coming up you know and i was in my middle to late 20s and trying to learn this and read everything i get my hands on it was chart patterns and trend lines uh, <clears throat> and moving averages and support levels and when i first started to learn the chart patterns, especially the poster boy ones, like the head and shoulders, right? Everybody knows the head and shoulders. Those things worked most of the time. Now, they don't. Um, and I, again, um, conspiracy theorist you know, that I may be, I think that there's a lot of programs out there that use these patterns to draw people in. And then once they're in, <clears throat> they flip it the other way. And now those people have immediate losses or maybe they had a profit for an hour and a half and now they're in trouble. And now they, so that's a way of controlling the herd, you know, turning the herd for short periods of time. I really believe, uh, I call it financial jujitsu because that's kind of what you're doing, right? Yeah. You know, you're trying to use their own weight against them. So I see a whole lot of that. So where I've, changed a lot 
is I've built some models over the years that look at, um, I have one that tracks the acid flows around the 11 sector spiders. It's called the CEIF model. I've got another one uh, called the correction protection model, um, which is a lot of clients ask me, is there a way that we can trade the S&P and get similar returns, but with a lot less risk? So it's another model uh, that moves out of the market um, when it's internally weak and it moves into the market when it's internally strong. It turns about once a quarter um, is, you know, the, you know, the cadence, you know, approximately. But where I was going with that is if I see a head and shoulders pattern now and my internal stuff like the Asbury 6 or some of the other stuff I look at, if that's negative, I don't go near it, right? But if I can see that pattern emerge on the chart, like there's a giant one in the SOX index now, the Philex Semiconductor Index, a giant inverse pattern. And then I'm seeing that there's money that is flowing into SOX, S-O-X-X. And I see that my internal models are showing internal strength. Corporate bond spreads are narrowing. The market is calming itself to a place where you could really have a trend beginning those are the ones I pay attention to. So the patterns are still there, but you need another tool, kind of a quantitative tool that tells you if the conditions in the market can support what that pattern is implying. Um, so that's kind of how I use some more mechanical um, model-based metrics to tell me which of the more classical technical tools that I should pay attention to and which ones I should avoid. I got off the floor uh, and worked for uh, a company called, I don't know if you remember, Bridge. Mm -hmm. Bridge was part of Knight Ritter. And so that was, it was tough getting off the trading floor, by the way. Um, it was very difficult um, um, to get hired. It was very difficult to go from being a trading floor guy to somebody that went to work for a firm. So my half step out of there you know, was Bridge News. It was Bridge because um, a guy there who ran it in Chicago, he knew who I was. He knew I was a good technician and hired me. But that's that's a whole other story that you know we may or may not want to go down that road. But it was very, very difficult um, for a guy on the trading floor because they saw these guys as um, – you know, gorillas that, uh, I mean, you know, sad to say, but I think the reputation of a guy on the trading floor was, you know, was really just some guy, you know, some muscle head that pushed people in the pit um, and filled orders kind of robotically and really didn't know markets and wasn't um, sophisticated um, or intelligent enough to, you know, to make the transition off the floor. And that wasn't just me. I mean, that was like everybody that I talked to that wanted to, got older and wanted to take their career somewhere else. It was a really difficult deal to get off the floor. So I was fortunate to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And so did you have to learn a whole lot, a lot more skills in terms of just computer programming and, and uh, not really. Cause I was, using, it, it was just, it was reputation. It was just, um, you know, I wasn't coming from the right place. Yeah, they would rather hire somebody academic that had less experience mm. than me. Because I think people looked, again, this was my experience. Other people might have um, 
a different experience. But for many of us down there, <clears throat> it was, you know, the trading floor people were just kind of, um, you know, mechanics that filled orders, right? They really um, didn't understand markets, but rather they were, um, you know, the mechanic, um, you know, that would fill their order. Yeah, the order fillers, order fillers. You know, you go to the store and you buy something and they give the ticket to the order filler and he goes and brings your, you know, your mattress out to the front. And that's kind of, <clears throat> I think that was a connotation. So it was difficult. Um, I actually, when I had my little business on the trading floor um, that I had, you know, that I had, um, I went out and bought myself an Apple 2E. I'm really dating myself now, right? You can probably find one in the Smithsonian Institute uh, <laughs> now, right? But I bought an Apple 2E, and one of my good friends that I knew outside of the exchange, he was a very early computer programmer. He was interested in it, and you know, and that's when people were writing little routines in DOS. I mean, this was like really um, at the very beginning. So I was I was probably as familiar with computers as um, um, a lot of people were, just because uh, I happened to have a friend that was uh, um, was kind of a uh, he was a geek. He was a, just a really smart guy. He understood computers. He was really interested in computers. And I told him this is what I do for my um, customers on the trading floor, and. Um, he wrote me a little routine, probably in DOS, you know, to compute the moving averages and to compute like a stochastic every day. This is before that, you know, you can get any of this stuff on the Internet. So, yeah, you know, kind of went down a rabbit hole there. But I don't think it was because of my lack of skills, but rather the connotation mm-hmm. that working on the trading floor was just a bunch of guys from the neighborhood, right, that were filling orders. Yeah, it's really interesting because if you look at the academic world and you look at a lot of the things that have come out of it, it's basically a lot of it is you can't beat the market. There's no use. Just diversify. And, um, you know, and I I learned so I kind of went just to give you a little bit of background. I kind of went full circle because I got into the technical world pretty early in in like around 1986, 1987. I didn't get my CMT until 1990 because it took a while for them. Back then, we had to write papers and things like that. I had to write one too. Yeah. And um, but uh, but I but when I got into the job, I, I was in college. I started studying for the CMT when I was in college. But then when I got a job, everybody wanted this CFA thing, so I went down the CFA route. So I I kind of went really full board on fundamentals. So it was like, wow, fundamentals are the intellectual high ground. And then the, uh, the 2000 dot com uh, bust happened. And uh, I realized that, you know, nothing works unless the price is moving in your favor. doesn't matter how much fundamental analysis you have. So um, and, and so my mix of, of, of fundamental technical changed. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because when I was reading your information, is it true that you have some fundamental and economic trend data that you follow as well? Well, I mean, some of the, um, it's effectively relative performance um, I, uh, of many different um, pairs, uh, you know, stocks versus high yield bonds is something that I pay attention to. 
Um, I look at um, I, I look at a lot of asset flows that are moving in and out of the uh, various ETFs. Um, it, it shows me conviction. It's the surrogate for open interest that I had when I was on the you know the futures floor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Open interest is a really great tool for letting you know if what happened that day was um, just guys trading intraday or if there's enough conviction there to hold the positions overnight. So I look at that. Um, I look at corporate bond spreads um, to see if they're widening or narrowing. Um, so there are, uh, you know, there are certain things that I look at that I think go beyond, you know, your, you know, classic, I'm, I'm using more of that, those kind of tools. Now I'm looking at things um, that aren't part of the technical analysis, you know, that I learned as a young man. Um, And I think, by bringing these different tools in um, and pairing them up like into models. So, cause there's no indicator that's right all the time. We all know that. And I think, you know, the trick of this is to get a combination of tools um, that could, you know, well, Asper six, it's got the rate of change in the S and P 500 of those six. That's the only one that directly has to do with the S and P 500. The other ones relative performance, investor asset flows. I'm actually reading right off my website. You have corporate bond spreads, volume, and market breadth are things that the day-to-day trading can't influence as much. In other words, the market could be down 70 today and up 90 tomorrow, um, which may change the rate of change in the S&P 500 slightly, but it's not going to affect those others. So, um, yeah, so I guess I would say um, 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 I've brought in a lot more non-classic technical analysis tools because I think you need them now. I think you need to verify what you see on the chart is really what it is because what you see on the chart is not – what you saw on the chart 10 or 15 years ago. There's a lot more day-to-day volatility. And again, I think there's a lot of false breakouts and the market comes you know, through a support level and runs everybody out and goes the other way. So there's a lot more verification that I do now mm. using these, let's call them secondary tools. And I think if, if you don't have that, you find yourself chasing your tail all day long. Yeah, that's it's interesting about the f- flows with ETFs. I haven't done any work with that. I have the data, but just haven't done anything with it. It's like uh, it's it could be used as a sentiment indicator. Um, there's so many things you could you could use uh, Bitcoin as a sentiment indicator. Sure. Uh, uh, just just taking uh, different data sets and then confirming like intermarket type analysis. So that's, that's really interesting. The struggle that I have with, there's always this struggle when you're managing money of, uh, you know, how systematic do you want to be versus how much of an art you want this to be. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that uh, I, I, I tend to lean more towards the systematic. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but there is so much 
value on the discretionary investing or trading side where you're using these higher level an analysis that you could use like kind of almost like macro analysis to help you make maybe longer term type trades or to, or to verify a particular signal. And um, yeah, it just depends on your style. It sounds to me like your style is more of the, the classic technical analysis uh, art, which I think is a very useful um, part of the discipline. I mean, I would, yeah, I would say the opposite. Um, oh, okay. I, uh, uh, I mean, I'm still, I'm still watching trend. Um, uh, you know, your basic tactical tools, um, but what makes them actionable are these models that I've put together. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I, I clear signals. There's a clear yeah. signal from the A6, for example. <clears throat> yes. And something else that I uh, you know, that I used to do early in my career, and I don't um, <clears throat> forecasting. Um, you know, I think when you're young, if you want to get on television, or, or you know, you want to be noticed, you have to be able to get on television. You have to be noticed by the press, right? And the way you do that is with a forecast. And you know, what I do now is trying not to. Um, every once in a while, I'll see a, a chart pattern that it's very obvious. You know, the chart patterns there, like there's one in the SOX index now that you know, suggests that we can move another 15 to 16% higher. So I look at that, but not, well, I'm going to buy them here and I'm going to look for 16% above the market for my profit and I'm going to risk three, you know, so my risk reward is five to one or whatever it may be. I don't do that anymore. I use that as an idea of what the trade could become, but I'm using... For me, tactical is 21 days. It's a business month. And strategic for me is 60, 63 days, a business quarter. So I'm using tactical tools like the A6 or CPM to tell me where those tactical opportunities are within that 63-day trend. And if the trend goes 83 days or 183 days, well, that's really wonderful. But I don't base expectations on how big this, how long this trend could last based on a target that I give from some kind of a technical measurement. That, um, if it's there and I could see it, it's interesting kind of subtext for me, but it's not the reason that I would put a trade on. I would not put a trade on um, anymore. And I, I suppose it sounds sacrilegious, maybe from CFD, but I wouldn't put a trade on because of a chart pattern. The chart pattern gives me context, expectations, right? But I wouldn't put up, like if I saw a chart pattern, a triangle, whatever it might be, I'm not going to put that trade on unless these you know, corporate bond spreads are doing what they're supposed to do. I see assets flowing into the ETFs that represent that. Relative performance versus the S&P is favorable. There's all these other hoops that are much more, uh, you know, much more important to me. So I would say I'm driven a lot more by these, um, um, you know, these models that I've built, these, um, you know, data-driven. You know, for me, everything is data now. There's been doing this all my life. So, I, you know, there is interpretation there. I mean, I know what I see on the chart. But, uh, but what gets me in and out of a trade are those data-driven indicators that I have – 
developed into different models that tell me when market conditions are favorable for that ETF to go up or that stock to go up or that index to go up. And all the chart patterns really do now is give me color. So I hope that's not sacrilegious, but that's the way. No, not at all. No, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, and well, the, the chart patterns are actually more uh, debatable. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to actually program chart patterns. And there are some people that have done a pretty good job, been a pretty amazing job programming chart patterns. Uh, the, the research is yet to prove itself out, but um, at least from what I've seen, I could be completely wrong on that. Uh, but that makes a lot of sense. And plus, you don't know how long trends are going to last. I mean, a trend could... Right there. You know, you, know, uh, you could have, you just got to go with it as long as it lasts and manage your risk. When it comes to really managing money, you know, there's a lot of stuff you could talk about on, in the research world. It, it's just more entertainment. Like you said, it's entertainment. Oh, it so, is. And, you know, it's clickbait. Um, a really good example. Um, you know, last year was a lousy year for everybody. So... Our CIF model, I built this model that tracks the asset flows in the 11 sector spiders, you know, which together are basically your S&P 500. And um, last year, on January the 10th, the model went, the CIF model went overweight energy. Um, at that time, on January 10th, there was no reason for me to think energy was going to do well. But there was money going there, you know, according to our model, it showed that there was money flowing there in multiple time frames. So that trend atypically stayed in place. We didn't get out of that overweight until June the 24th. And I think during that period, I think XLE outperformed SPY by something ridiculous. It was like 40%. Um, did I have any idea how long that trend was going to last? None. I went there because the money was going there. I stayed there as long as the money stayed. Typically, the money might stay. The sector rotations, as I'm sure you know, have really sped up over the past five years. Very. So I need to figure out a way. If I was going to do sector rotation, I needed to get into those trades faster. Because if that trades only last in seven weeks, I can't get in on week three or four when it's plain as day on the chart because I've missed half that trade. So I started playing around with looking at ETF flows and seeing if there was a way to see the money moving before the money pushes the market into, you know, into a trend. Yeah, the moral of that story was I had no expectations when I bought XLE other than the money's going there this week. If next week the money leaves there and goes into Staples, I'm going there right along with it. Um, rather than forecasting, I'm just trying to follow the money because – the money, money doesn't stay in a bad trade very long, right? You know, the money is constantly looking to find opportunity and the money is way smarter than I could ever be. Um, so I just try to follow that money. And in that particular case, um, CFAL performed the S&P by 12% last year. And that was simply on that one idea. Mm. It was in energy from January to June. It was out and... The rest of the sector rotations are outside of a little bit of our performance last year around Halloween time by technology. I think technology might have hit a five or six week trade of relative outperformance. Everything else was up 3% of outperformance, down three, up three. There was, there was a lot of choppiness. There was a few of those that didn't work out real well, but I caught the one 
tiger that there was in that, you know, in the year by the tail. Um, and it was with no expectations that, oh, I think this is going to last a quarter. I think that this could be the trade of the year. I think oil stocks are doing this, or I think OPEC's doing that. The money is going there and so am I. That was as simple as that. I do a lot more of that stuff now um, as opposed to trying to come up with this theory in my head. Rates are doing this and the Fed's going to do that and earnings are expected to be poor. Therefore, I'm going into the sector. I hear that all day. I don't see how you make any money with that, frankly. Thank you for saying that Uh, because it, it, it sells. It's a good narrative. But if your job is to manage money, that doesn't really work very well <laughs> because because you have this time. Uh, well, I shouldn't I should say for many people, it doesn't work very well. Some people it does. Uh, for me, it's never worked very well. Um, you know, that's that's one of the reasons why I've gone more towards this continuous signaling, uh, wh- because you can actually make relative uh, asset allocation bets or trades. And then you could you could have multiple systems that. Are, are that are designed to make money in different environments and then you put them together and you have a better sharp ratio better investment strategy than you know we're right now we're talking about just about stocks um but i i think what you're doing makes a ton of sense to me and um it is the direction that i think technical analysis has added a lot of value there's so many things going out now ai and all these other things uh it's and I, it's kind of fun to see the evolution and i love talking to you know like you and people like you um that that have gone from the, you know, kind of the I wouldn't call it the infancy, but I would say the middle stage of the technical sure. discipline. Uh, the infancy would be like going way way back, right? But yeah, the Ralph Ekamporas, the guys from the '60s, uh, those guys. I mean, I know Ralph, and uh, um, um, you know, and John Murphy is another guy from the future side. When I was 25, I wanted to be those guys when I grew up, and it was a different time. And yeah, the evolution of this and the intelligence that's gone into this and the bringing in of different inputs is really cool. Um, You know, it's, you know, before it was trend lines and, uh, and moving averages and um, it's gotten broader. It's gotten more robust. There's just more inputs coming in there, which allow you to make better decisions. So uh, you're going to be speaking at the CMT association's 50th anniversary here coming up. It's a significant milestone for the organization. You're one of the speakers. I know a lot of people maybe have not heard of this, but on April 26th through the 28th in New York, there's going to be a pretty big event. And it's, I'm excited to know that you're going to be there talking about it, about uh, what exactly is your topic? Enhanced technical analysis with data-driven models. Love it. Enhanced technical, kind of just what we talked about. You're still looking at trend. You're still looking at all of the basic technical analysis tools, which all have validity, but you're adding depth and context by bringing in um, different models that you have tested to perform in certain ways. Like our CPM model is um, over the past 12 years, um, it's underperformed the S&P on average by 2% a year, but it's done it with a beta of 0.44. The maximum drawdown is 15% instead of 34 for the S&P. And the um, standard deviation is 4% and change lower than the S&P. 
So I fooled around with that data and I said, well, what happens if we use a leveraged ETF? We use um, an SSO. In other words, build in you know, some of the risk back in, see right. what that does to the other side of the equation. So now again, back tested 12 years back, brings the beta up to like 0.88. Um, I think the standard deviation is a couple of percentage points higher, brings that maximum drawdown to 30, uh, 30% instead of 34. But now on average, it's outperforming the S&P by 5.7% a year. So that's fun for me. That's what I enjoy doing is feeding that in and seeing how you can, it's kind of like a stereo, right? And you're, you know, the old fashioned stereos where you have the equalizers and you can change the sound, you know, you can. Yeah. So the next thing we're working on, and my son is coming to work for me soon, um, full time. And, uh, He's, uh, I always say he's the brains and I'm the experience. I'm the old guy with the experience. <laughs> but what we're really looking forward to doing, and we've already started kind of, you know, fooling around with this, is what if you take a couple of models? Like what if you take model A and model B, and kind of what you said, this is what kind of got me to think about that, and you put them together and you allocate a $100,000 model portfolio, you allocate 30% to this, 70% to this, brings your beta here, it brings your sharp ratio here. You start to turn that dial and you could hone that into numbers that might be more applicable to certain investors. You know, oh, this, this is exactly the, the formula, the menu. It's like, you know, the menu, I say menu, it's like making a dish, right? You blend these together, yes. the certain spices. So, you know, you said that had a 30% drawdown. So you basically volatility adjusted it up to the S&P, which is great. You have, you get a better return profile for the same amount of risk. But then you could say, okay, let's let's put a strategy that's designed just for negative markets, uh, or let's put a, a, a futures trend following non-correlated model against that, and your sharp ratio really your your return risk improves a lot. So it, that's that to me is the secret sauce of 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 like blocking and tackling and making uh, making it work. You know, without a bunch of theoretical stuff like you said, talking heads and all of that. I'm just the opposite, by the way. I don't, I don't have CNBC any, anymore. I used to have it on um, because I, I, I'm the type of person, you're more disciplined than me probably. Uh, I'm the type of person, if I hear a bunch of stuff, I'll go investigate it. It's like, oh my gosh, someone's talking about that. That sounds right. And then I'll start going down that rabbit hole. I, I tend to do better when I uh, talk to smart people like you one-on-one -on -one and then just do work. <laughs> you know, it's so funny that you said that too because when I was on the trading floor, I um, was... I would get really you know, caught up in it. You know, I was in my 30s and there's a lot of testosterone and chest bumping that goes on in that room, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you hear the roar, right? It's, you know, so you run over to that pit and you're looking in there to try to see what's happening and you're like, you know, I got to jump in. It's like, a, it's like a bar fight in a John Wayne movie, you know, and you got to jump in there, right? So you jump in there and you do this really stupid emotional thing and you jump into a market because you hear people yelling and you think there's money to be made. All right, so now you say, well, this is my short-term trend. Well, you know, it happens, uh, four hours go by and your trend has turned south in a big way. And now it's a long-term trend, right? Well, right. you know, look at the long-term chart. So the reason that I'm doing all these models now and building all of these is because I know my Achilles heel mm -hmm. is that that emotion can really make me do stuff that I'll hate myself for for the next two weeks. Mm -hmm. So 
I don't do anything until these numbers tell me it's safe to go in the water. And when these numbers say, time to get out, pal, I'm gone. And you know what? I'm an older person now. I sleep like a baby. When I was younger, I didn't sleep much because right, yeah. everything is emotionally driven. If you're yeah. an emotional person in these markets, you're dog food. You know, you you have such a low chance unless you're just a natural. And I've seen guys in the pit like that, that they don't know anything about markets, but there's something that they have that they could trade and you didn't know how they did it but they did it. I'm not one of those guys. I need to be disciplined. I need to have numbers tell me what to do so I can keep my anxiety level down and think. So it's funny you said that, but that's why I've gone to this stuff because I know that's the, I know the kind of person I am and what I need to do to be successful. Well, you know, I, I agreed. I'm, I, me and you are similar because I, I work better that way too. I was going to mention uh, uh, that I mentioned to you that, uh, Peter Brandt was somebody that I've had a lot of conversations with, or I shouldn't say a lot, but I've had a, quite a few conversations with. And he, uh, I said, what did Paul Tudor Jones do? And he said, he did everything. He was one of those guys that could do what you were talking about, where he could be in the, he could watch things and then and act. Uh, but that's a very rare person. So I think, I think a lot of people would just be who are in the investment business would be better served to get out of that as soon as possible, you know, and, and move more towards this more systematic. Uh, and I think it would change the results, but you're right. When you're younger, you want to, you want to be that person, right? You, you, you feel like that's what you sh you're supposed to be. You want to, you're supposed to be stressed out. And the other thing was for me, I mean, I grew up in a blue collar family and all my uncles were blue collar guys. Right. And I was always told if you work harder, you're going to be more successful. Work mm. hard. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Push it to the limit. Um, and when you walk out of the floor of the CMA, th that thought process will kill you. I mm. mean, I remember trading during the day. Um, it's nine or 10 o'clock in the morning. Nothing's going on. The markets are quiet. I don't have any ideas. I don't have anything that looks like an opportunity on my chart. But I can't go home at 10 o'clock, right? You know, you because of that mindset. You got to work till 3.30, baby. You know, that's your punch in, you punch out, you take your 30-minute lunch. So instead of going to the beach and having fun or going fishing for the day, I stay and try to make something that's not there. And I go home with a big loss and I'm kicking myself all the way home. So it's so funny the way this trading markets is counterintuitive oftentimes to what you're taught as a young man, how to be successful. Pushing too hard in this business can really, I mean, it can knock you out of the game. That's right. Well, I, we could talk forever. I really yeah. appreciate your time. And uh, I've learned a lot about how you're approaching things and uh, appreciate you spending some time with us today and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you speak in New York. Look forward to seeing you. Thanks. It was really fun. You asked a lot of great questions. You brought back a lot of memories uh, from over the years. Thank you. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. 
WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.